Chapter 4, The Dangers of Loving Money During college, I took a world religions class. A Buddhist monk was brought in as a guest speaker. He had no modern-day luxuries, such as a vehicle, computer, or refrigerator, because he thought these were sinful or immoral. He thought it was good or moral to allow himself only what was necessary for survival, such as food, water, and shelter. But this is not what Jesus meant when he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 There, Jesus referred to denying ourselves immoral pleasures, but the monk was abstaining from things that are amoral, or non-sinful, or spiritually neutral. Colossians 2, 20-23 records, If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men? These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. When people rigorously neglect the amoral and follow legalistic, man-made commands, there is an appearance of wisdom, but there is no value against indulging the flesh, which is to say there is no spiritual benefit. It's heartbreaking when people spend years rigorously denying themselves in ways that have no moral or spiritual benefit. The Bible teaches that drunkenness and homosexuality are immoral, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. It's tragic when people spend years getting drunk or participating in homosexual relationships because they're convinced their immoral actions are amoral. We must understand morality because if we don't, we might find ourselves in one of the above situations and fail to see the goodness or morality of certain behaviors and the sinfulness or immorality of others. These are the two mistakes we typically make with morality. Let's consider them in more detail so we'll be prepared to view our money correctly. Mistake 1. Thinking something is amoral when it is moral or immoral. Many verses discuss the morality of our words. For example, Matthew 12:37, Jesus said, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 1 Peter 3.10, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Most people know their speech is moral, but they might not know that the amount they speak and listen is also moral versus amoral. James 1.19 says, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. This verse contains three commands, which means we're dealing with morality. It is moral to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and it is immoral to be slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. Anger and listening might be mentioned together because they're closely related. As a pastor, when I'm counseling couples, sometimes it's obvious early on who's more at fault when problems arise because they're slow to hear and quick to get angry. Ecclesiastes teaches that one way to identify fools is they talk too much. 
A fool's voice is known by his many words. A fool also multiplies words. Ecclesiastes 5.3 and 10.14 David took so seriously how much he spoke that he prayed God would protect his mouth. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141.3 Proverbs is filled with contrasts between wise and foolish people. One of the contrasts is wise people listen, but foolish people babble on. The wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. Proverbs 10.8 Mistake 2 Thinking something is immoral when it is amoral. Food, guns, and knowledge are amoral, which means people are not spiritually better or worse if they do or don't eat certain foods, have or don't have guns, or have more or less knowledge than others. But what we do with food, guns, and knowledge is moral. Certain foods are healthier or unhealthier than others, but spiritually they're not better or worse than other foods. 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Food is amoral, but our relationship to it is moral. We can commit the sin of gluttony, or, on the other side of the spectrum, the sins of anorexia and bulimia. God doesn't care what we eat, but he cares how much we eat. Guns are amoral but they can be used in moral and immoral ways. The same is true of knowledge, which is information, but it can be used in moral and immoral ways. Some people have used their knowledge morally to benefit humanity. Jacob Perkins used his knowledge of mechanical engineering to invent refrigeration. The Wright brothers used their knowledge of aviation to develop human flight. Tim Berners-Lee used his knowledge of computer programming to develop the World Wide Web. Isaac Newton used his knowledge of astronomy to promote creationism. Other people have used their knowledge immorally in detrimental ways to humanity. Genghis Khan used his knowledge of politics and war to lead a Mongol horde that killed millions of people. Karl Marx used his knowledge of law and philosophy to try to destroy capitalism and create a classless communist society. Margaret Sanger used her knowledge of reproduction to establish organizations that evolved into Planned Parenthood. Richard Dawkins uses his knowledge of biology to promote atheism and the theory of evolution. What does all of this have to do with our finances? Good question. People make these same mistakes with money. First, they think the way they spend money is amoral, when in fact every purchase is either moral or immoral. Second, they think money is immoral when it is amoral. The amoral nature of money. Because money is amoral, having more or less of it is not good or bad. The rich and poor are made in God's image, and therefore they have equal value. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 22, 2. Many of the greatest people in Scripture were wealthy. In the Old Testament, there were Abraham, Job, and Solomon. In the New Testament, there were Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, and those who hosted church in their homes because they were wealthy enough to have homes that accommodated large groups. You could look at this list of wealthy people and say, they're rich, but we don't know that God wanted them to be rich. Maybe God wanted them to be poor, but they disobeyed him. 
The problem is we are told God gave them riches, which we wouldn't read if riches were immoral. Genesis 13.2 says Abraham was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. In the Abrahamic covenant in the previous chapter, God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Genesis 12.2. Part of the blessing was wealth. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Sometimes God blesses people with riches, and when he does, nothing negative accompanies it. When Solomon replied that he wanted an understanding mind so he could better govern the people of Israel, God said, Because you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. 2 Chronicles 1, 11, and 12. After Job's suffering ended, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Job 42.12 This is rich, whether in the ancient world or ours. Solomon, Hannah, and David saw wealth coming from God. Every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Ecclesiastes 5.19 and 6.2 The Lord makes poor and makes rich. 1 Samuel 2.7 And both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. 1 Chronicles 29.12 God also gives the ability to obtain riches. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 Would God do all this if money was immoral? Although, before you start thinking that being rich is good or moral, consider that some of the greatest men in Scripture were also poor, including our Lord. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 Jesus lived in such poverty during his earthly ministry, he didn't even have a bed. The apostles followed his example. Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. Matthew 19, 27. Clearly, being rich or poor is not moral or immoral, righteous or sinful, because money is amoral. But what we do with money, and the way we feel toward it, is moral. Let's consider these two important truths in detail. How we spend money is moral. Money, like other possessions, such as homes or vehicles, is a resource we can use honorably or dishonorably. Regardless of how much or how little money we have, every cent we spend is moral or immoral. We can spend money morally by caring for our families, blessing others, and giving to the church. We can spend money immorally if we buy something ungodly, support something sinful, or satisfy our covetousness. James Moffat said, A man's treatment of money is the most decisive test of his character, how he makes it and how he spends it. We can tell what our priorities are by looking at our checkbook and calendar. They reveal what we do with two of our most valuable assets, our money and time. 
the way we spend these reveals much about our morality. How we feel about money is moral. Our relationship with money, which is to say the way we feel about it, is also moral. Consider how many verses condemn loving money. Luke 16.14 criticizes the Pharisees for being lovers of money. 1 Timothy 3.3 says one of the qualifications for elders is they don't love money. 2 Timothy 3.2 says one of the behaviors characterizing the wickedness of the last days will be love for money. Hebrews 13.5 commands us to keep our lives free from the love of money. Why so many verses warning against loving money? The answer is in 1 Timothy 6.9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's unpack these powerful verses over the rest of the chapter. The love of money versus money is the problem. Consider the way the Amplified Bible translates parts of 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who crave to get rich with a compulsive, greedy longing for wealth, the love of money, that is, the greedy desire for it and the willingness to gain it unethically. These verses are not about people who say, it would be nice to be rich. Instead, they are about people who are so fixated on riches it controls their lives, and this is the danger. You have probably heard the well-known maxim, money is the root of all evil. This sounds similar to what 1 Timothy 6.10 says, but there are two differences which, although subtle, are significant. First, the maxim says money is the cause of all evil in the world, but we have already discussed that money itself is amoral. There is plenty of evil that has nothing to do with money. It's not right to think money is immoral or responsible for evil because that puts the blame in the wrong place. Jesus blamed our hearts. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Matthew 15, 19. And James blamed our flesh. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James 1, 14 and 15. Evil is not birthed from money but it is birthed from us giving into temptation. Second, the maxim makes money the problem, but Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. We should blame our relationships to money, not money itself. We get into trouble when we love money, regardless of how much wealth we have. People can love money whether they are rich or poor. The poor would love to be rich, and the rich would love to be richer. This should cause us to examine how we feel about money. Do we covet it? dream about it, and obsess over it? These are important questions because the love of money can be, as Paul said, a snare. Trapped by the love of money. I once watched a fascinating video of a man trapping a monkey. He hollowed out a space on the side of a mound and put food in it. The opening was large enough only for a monkey to insert his hand to get the food. Then the man stood behind a tree a little distance away and waited. A monkey went to the opening, put in his hand, and grabbed the food. The opening wasn't big enough for the monkey to remove its hand with the food, and because it wouldn't let go, it was trapped. While the monkey tried to free itself, the man came up from behind and captured it. 
While it's easy to mock the monkey because it was caught by its own foolishness, the same can happen to us. Paul said those who love money fall into a snare. 1 Timothy 6.9 The Greek word translated snare is pagis, and it refers to a trap in which animals are entangled and caught unexpectedly, like the monkey. Let's consider the ways loving money can snare us so we can avoid being trapped. Loving money leads to sin. Murder, adultery, and lying are clearly evil. But is the desire to be rich really that bad? It is because of the sin it produces. We would expect Paul to say desiring to be rich is the temptation, but instead he said if we desire to be rich, we fall into temptation. In other words, loving money causes us to be tempted. The Greek word translated desire is bolomai, and it means to will deliberately. This speaks of people who have decided they will be rich versus allowing God to make them rich, assuming that is his will for their lives. The desire to be rich leads to temptation because this leads people to be willing to do almost anything to reach their goal. Nothing, including resisting sin, will stand between them and the money they are committed to obtaining. Once the love of money has taken root in people's hearts, rare is the evil that can't be perpetrated. Many crimes are motivated by greed, jealousy, covetousness, or all the above. People will lie, cheat, steal, and even murder to become rich. So instead of saying money is the root of all evil, because the problem is actually the love of money, a fitting statement would be that the lack of money is the root of their evil. A few verses earlier, 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. People who love money lack contentment. If they were content, they wouldn't desire to be rich. Instead of being filled with godliness, they are filled with ungodliness, which leads to their sinful behavior. Here are some examples from Scripture. Achan was willing to steal and then deceive to get what he wanted, Joshua 7, 10-26. Balaam was willing to go against the expressed will of God to get what he wanted, Numbers 22, 4-41. Gehazi coveted the money Naaman offered, and he was willing to engage in numerous sins to get it, 2 Kings 5, 15-27. Judas was willing to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. People who love money have broken the first of the Ten Commandments because they have made money their God, and they have broken the second commandment because they have made money their idol. Then it is only slightly more compromising to break the other commandments, which forbid lying, stealing, adultery, taking God's name in vain, and murder. J.C. Ryle said, Let us all be on our guard against the love of money. The world is full of it in our days. The plague is abroad. Thousands who would hate the idea of worshiping an idol are not ashamed to make an idol of gold. We are all liable to the infection, from the least of us to the greatest. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captives before we are aware of our chains. Once it becomes master, it will harden, paralyze, scorch, freeze, blight, and wither our souls. It overthrew an apostle of Christ, Judas. Let us take heed that it does not overthrow us. Loving money hurts others. We might think loving money only affects the sinner, but, as is the case with all sin, there are far-reaching consequences that affect everyone around the sinner, such as family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. 
these people must experience the sinner's obsession and discontentment, suffer through the compromise and deceit, shoulder the financial and legal problems caused. Achan is a perfect example. Think of the cost to his family. Proverbs 15.27 says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Could there be a better example than Achan? The greedy for unjust gain trouble their household as they neglect their families. How many people have sacrificed marriages for jobs or put the next promotion ahead of their children? Fight over money. How many families have been destroyed after someone died and the relatives quarreled over the inheritance? These people love money more than their family members. As a lawyer will tell you, where there's a will, there are relatives. Loving money ruins and destroys. Loving money is also a trap because it will plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6.9 Here the words ruin and destruction are synonymous. God repeats himself to drive home the devastating consequences. The Greek word translated plunge is bethysio, and it means to sink into the deep or drown. The only place it occurs in scripture is when the disciples experienced the miraculous catch of fish. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink, Bethysio, Luke 5, 7. Just as the disciples began to sink and inevitably would have drowned, people's love of money, figuratively speaking, causes them to sink and drown. The form of Bethysio presents a continual action, which means that as long as people love money, they will keep sinking, drowning, and heading toward ruin and destruction. We know there are negative consequences to loving money in this life, but what about the next life? In other words, are we talking only about temporary ruin and destruction, or are we talking about eternal ruin and destruction? There are eternal consequences too. The following verse, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We are saved by faith, so when people have wandered away from the faith, they have wandered away from salvation. This isn't to say they have lost their salvation, but that they have abandoned the way to be saved. The imagery is of people straying off a path and finding themselves in thorn bushes where they pierce themselves with many pangs. Other verses also communicate the eternal consequences. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. The rich man who ignored Lazarus loved money and went to hell, Luke 16.23. The rich young ruler serves as a sobering example of wandering away from the faith, 1 Timothy 6.10. Let's examine his account so as not to miss the warning it provides. Loving money requires repentance. Nobody wants to think they would walk away from the Lord. But when people do, what would you imagine causes them to do so? Would it be the loss of a child, an unfaithful spouse, a terminal disease, or a Christian friend's betrayal? The rich young ruler did because he loved money. As Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother, Mark 10, 17 through 19. 
There's much to appreciate about the ruler. He looks humble and genuine. He thinks highly of Jesus and is interested in spiritual matters. He believes in God and wants to go to heaven. Jesus' response to him shouldn't be interpreted as though he is not good or not God. Instead, he is saying the opposite. There is only one who is good, and that is God. So if the ruler calls Jesus good, he must also recognize Jesus as God. Jesus answered the ruler's question by telling him he could inherit eternal life if he kept God's commandments, obeyed the law, perfectly. Because none of us can do that, God graciously provided a way for us to be righteous by faith apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3, 21 and 22 and 28. If we can't be righteous by the law, what purpose does it serve? It reveals our unrighteousness. By the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. Paul said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, Romans 7.7. Recognizing our sin reveals our need for the Savior. Therefore, Jesus shared the Ten Commandments with the ruler so he would see his need for Christ. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mark 10, 19-22 In a truly remarkable demonstration of pride, self-deception, or both, the ruler said he had kept all the commandments. Because the ruler didn't recognize his sin, Jesus told him to sell his possessions. This ended up revealing the ruler's sin of covetousness. Part of Jesus' dealing with the ruler is descriptive describing what happened, and part is prescriptive, prescribing or instructing us to do the same. Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. This is descriptive of what happened, but it is not prescriptive for us. We don't need to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. John 2.24 says Jesus knew all people, and Hebrews 4.12 says he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Because Jesus knew the ruler and what was in his heart, he knew what he needed to repent of, covetousness and idolatry. While we might not need to repent of the same as the ruler, the part that is prescriptive is the need to repent. The ruler needed to repent of loving money, and we might need to repent of bitterness, lying, pornography, or theft. Because each of us struggle with different sins, repentance looks different for each person. But the commonality is we must all repent. Choking Christ out of our lives. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, He who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Matthew 13, 22. The love of money chokes the spiritual out of our lives, and the ruler is a good example of what it looks like when this happens. Jesus told him to choose between his possessions and the Lord. Sadly, he chose his possessions. 
Regardless of how sincere he was and how much he wanted to inherit eternal life, he was not willing to part with his wealth. Jesus told him, you will have treasure in heaven. But earthly treasure was more important to him. He might be the best example in Scripture of disobeying Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In response, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 23-25 There are different opinions about what it means for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, but the main point is obvious. It is hard for rich people to enter heaven. Their riches are an obstacle to salvation. Whatever the eye of a needle is, a camel can't fit through it. Similarly, people who love money can't fit into the kingdom of God. Their wealth doesn't leave room for Christ. The issue is competition. We can only have so many things occupying space in our hearts. To let one thing in is to keep out something else. This is good if we let in Christ, but bad if we let in loving money. As we discussed earlier, money can become an idol, and we don't have room for two gods in our hearts. We can have Christ or the love of money, but not both. Let's make sure we choose wisely. While the ruler thought about the next life, another wealthy man in Scripture thought only about this life, and that's the rich fool. Before we start learning what to do with our wealth, the parable about the rich fool will show us what not to do with our wealth. In the next chapter, we will learn important ways to avoid being foolish with money.